Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. I think it would definitely be linked to legislation. Yeah. Definitely from a tax perspective. So I think that's the big thing because we both CFPs. I'm part of the Financial Planning Institute of Southern Africa. So that's my, you know, geographic location. And I guess yours would be USA. So I'd say the biggest thing would be legislation linked to tax laws. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hi there, welcome back to the Mindful Money Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I really want to read you another one of these five-star reviews that a listener wrote in, but the listener was also a guest. So it's somebody that was listening and she was listening, then she came on as a guest. She's still the listener. So that's great. So she says, I had the opportunity to both listen and be a guest on Jonathan's show. He's got a very diverse guest list. He makes each guest feel comfortable. This allows everyone to shine. Now, the questions he asked aren't check the box questions. They're tailored to every guest. He approaches money mindset by selecting fabulous guests from different industries. And he shows there are the shows are a perfect length, and during the show, you learn about his own challenges. He's very open with his successes with money and with wealth. So, if you'd like to leave a review, please visit ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. Your reviews obviously mean a lot to us because they tell all the Google algorithms and YouTube algorithms and everybody that they should like share us more broadly with the universe and more listeners means we can do more good in the world. So please, if you're able, leave a review and we thank you. So on today's episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with, and I should have asked you how to say this before we started, <laughs> Nikki Gaju Freelinghouse or Freilinghouse? Freelinghouse. I got it right the first time. <laughs> Freelinghouse, very German. So Nikki is a certified financial planner, a certified life coach, a certified money coach, a certified business archetype coach, and an NLP practitioner. She's the founder of Opulentus Wealth, an advisory practice like our advisory practices you know here in the US based in Sunning Hill, Johannesburg, South Africa. And she's the founder of Imali Coaching, where she assists individuals, business owners, couples to transform the relationship with money. Obviously, you know, given all the letters after her name, Nikki is always learning, but it's not just academics. She's got a really deep interest in topics of self-growth and personal development. Her favorite quote, and I love this, is the greatest glory in living lies not in never failing, but rising every time we fail. 
Nelson Mandela. Nikki, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Hi there, listeners. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm excited for this because you and I have kind of a, we have a very, we're on opposite sides of the globe, but we have a very similar path where we have this financial advisory practice. We also have this coaching and money coaching practice. I'm looking forward to get into this. So first, where do you call home and are you there now? Okay. So where I'm at right now is not my place of birth, though it's always been in South Africa, but just in a different state, as you know it. So home for me is Ravonia, Johannesburg. As many of you may be aware, Johannesburg is the economic hub of South Africa. So this is my home. And you said you grew up there? No, I actually grew up in a very small town in a different state. The town's called Newcastle. And I lived there right until the age of about 18, until I went off to college, spent four years at college. And when I was done, I got my first job at one of the banks in South Africa. And that required me to move states. And that is how mm -hmm. I moved to Johannesburg. And this has been my home since then. Yeah. I like to start with some questions about, and this will be different, I think, and maybe it won't be, and maybe I'm sort of fantasizing about what it's like <laughs> in Africa, South Africa versus the United States. But what did you learn about like money or entrepreneurship growing up? So the entrepreneurship part is a very easy one. My dad had his own construction business. So I literally grew up playing on construction sites. So while many girls played with dolls, I played with tea sets and filled my cups up with cement or sand. So yeah, at a very young age, my brothers and I were exposed to entrepreneurship and basically writing your own paycheck. In terms of money, this is a bit of a tricky one, Jonathan, because I was about 14 years old when my dad passed on. So my mom then became a single mom with myself and my two siblings being a young mom of three kids. So everything I knew about money prior to the age of 14, I'd say was empowering. It was fun. It was exciting. It was like whatever you asked for, you got, you know, because my dad was financially well off. We were financially well off at that point in time. When my dad had passed on, he had made financial provisions for the family, but my mom wasn't really good at managing finances. And I also come from a culture where at that point in time, the husband was the provider, the husband took care of the finances. So my mom found herself being very overwhelmed at that point in time, being a young widow, having three kids to raise, and also having a huge lump sum of money to manage literally for the next about, I'd say, 20 to 25 years, because my youngest brother was six at that point in time, you know, and I could see how overwhelmed she was with everything, you know, from the loss of my dad to now taking over his business as a person who had never run a business before, you know, and also having to manage finances, having to raise kids. So I'd say for me, a turning point in terms of finances for me was at that point in time after the age of 14, because then I sort of got a reality check, if that made sense. You know, my mom did whatever she could to provide for us. But instead of getting five Christmas presents, we were only getting two Christmas presents, you know. So that shift in terms of our financial situation became very apparent 
when my dad had passed on. You know, it was like going from getting whatever you wanted, you know, ask and you will receive to getting to a stage where ask, but either mom would say not right now or maybe later or no. And then having to work with what you have. So for me, that's the two differences I've experienced around money at a young age. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you know anything about the show or what the foundation of the show is, Mindful Money, the podcast, but almost two years ago now, my brother passed away and he was, you know, he had 16 year old and 13 year old at the time. So right around your age, my family lost, my brother's family had the same experience and they're actually having the exact same experience you're talking about, except that not as good a provisioning, not as good a planning. My brother didn't do as good a planning to leave them in good shape. So it's, this podcast has actually started because I wanted to find a way to give people advice and some education who didn't have access and didn't feel like they had access. Right. So that you just hijacked the, the show is going to go down a completely different path now. And I really, really, really appreciate that. So my, Okay. The first question that's coming to my mind, there's thousands of them right now. Was there another adult? I'm assuming when your dad passed, your mom was a mess. And this is probably a long, long ago. So there's a lot of, I don't want to dredge up any emotions, but you know, if we have some, that's fine. Was there another adult that, that you sort of not glommed onto, but you approached and did you have an uncle or an aunt or a grandma or a grandpa or somebody, a close family friend that you would say, my mom is a mess. I need to talk to this person. And then how did that relationship develop? And were they good with money? And did that affect your interest in money or your knowledge about money at that time? So quite a few questions, Jonathan. Yeah, lots of stuff. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're just dumped. You changed everything for me. Firstly, <laughs> from my side, my condolences to you and your family. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Okay, so a bit of a tricky one. My dad was the oldest of six siblings, so his brothers and sisters actually leaned on to him for financial advice and for guidance. So with my dad no longer being there, his two younger brothers stepped in to assist my mom, both with the business as well as just finding her feet from a financial perspective initially. So my go-to people during those years was my two uncles, you know, for anything and their spouses, you know, being a teenager, being a female, you're growing, you're changing, you know, and you need a mom. And my mom tried as best as possible to pull herself together. There were some challenges around mental health at that point in time, which you can understand as she was grieving and trying to cope with her loss. And I guess we all were in some shape or form, you know, as young as we were. And I was fortunate, you know, with my two uncles, their spouses, and some of the other members from my maternal side of the family also stepped in to try and support us wherever they could, be it emotionally or whatever we needed during that point in time. And I guess what I learned from them from a financial perspective, and this may take the show to another level as well, Jonathan, is as a female, I started becoming more and more aware of the gender differences between males and females in society and specifically in relation to the culture that I came from. And apart from my mom, I started looking at my aunt and uncle and, and, you know, their relationships. And I noticed that it was always, and please, I'm not hating on guys here. It was always the male 
who was in charge of finances. It was the male who made all the major decisions in the household. And the female was there, you know, she was the caregiver, managed the household. Yes, she did have a job, but, you know, it was never on the same level as the partner. And I started to see the inequality, if that made sense, you know. And Jonathan, at that young age, in my teens, I was very clear, no matter where life took me, what was going to become very important for me in my lifetime would be financial independence. And not only financial independence, but just independence in general. You know, I always yep. looked at my mom's situation. You know, she never planned for my dad to pass on, but it happened right? And my dad, on the other hand, obviously didn't plan to leave my mom and the family at such a young age and have her take on the responsibilities. And in doing so, he didn't really empower her to be an equal or empower her when it came to household decisions, be it financial or whatever decisions, you know, which when my dad passed on, my mom was now literally a hot mess, trying to pick up and do everything, you know, things that simple things like budgeting, like paying accounts, these were things that my dad took care of, right? And now yeah, she was yeah, the one yeah. having to manage all of this. So yeah, I've been in the financial services world for 25, six, seven years now, right? And I, what I've noticed in that time frame, and this still happens, if you have a couple that comes in and maybe you have the same experience and they're older, the man handles the finances in most cases. And I would say most meaning 80%. I think 20 years ago, it was 90, 95%. Now it's 80%. And I got to tell you, my strongest, most disciplined, most intelligent you know, client is a woman. And she's been managing her four generations of family finances for you know, 50 years. Like, so there's exceptions to this rule. But today, and I'm wondering if you have the same experience in your practices, when a couple comes in, it's either equal or oftentimes women are actually taking the lead and making many decisions. Do you have that same experience? Jonathan, it's like a mirror, right? So I'm finding yeah. the exact same here in South Africa as well. I'd say early in my career, there was, you know, stole males making decisions. What I am finding lately over the last five to 10 years or so is that a lot of decisions are joint decisions. So couples are more open to joint financial planning. And there are instances where you'd find that the female is more stronger than the male, be it emotionally, financially, and she tends to take the lead. I had to put in emotional, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and she tends to take the lead in the finances. But also, I've now experienced two sides of this. And my response has been from the advisory side now. But when I look at my second practice being the coaching practice, one of the areas that I practice in is couples money coaching. And that mm -hmm. experience has been absolutely mind blowing. Because the couple's money coaching just focuses on the thoughts, behaviors, and emotions of the couple around money. And it's actually not uncommon when working with clients, you know, you hear the saying opposites attract. And that is what I've 
I tend to find with all the couples that I've worked with and I am currently working with. And the gender is irrelevant, but you will find one person is a staunch saver and the other person is a compulsive spender. And I chatted to some of my colleagues as well. And I said to them, is this only happening to me? But it seems like every couple has this dynamic. And they've actually said to me, you know, this is actually quite common, but it's only when you hone down. So when you look at it from a financial planning perspective, it's more around the joint finances and coming together and who's making the It's not about who's making the decisions. It's what are you planning together for your, you know, what are your joint goals? Whereas when it comes to the couple's coaching, you separate the couple, right? And then you look at each person's individual emotions and behaviors around money. And that is when you start picking that one person just to avoid conflict tends to agree to go with the other Mm -hmm. person who is much stronger you know, and that for me was absolutely fascinating and mind blowing. And then the work we do with the couples is to create a safe space where we actually encourage communication because that the couples money coaching is only about communication. It isn't even about the money. It's about communication. And for the party that wasn't heard or seen before to now allow them the platform to be seen and heard and going forward to have both partners in the relationship be able to safely communicate their needs to each other without worrying about or fearing any conflict and then reaching their joint planning goals together and the success of it. So what do you, what happens when, and this is very personal, sure. right? When one of us, literally us, my wife and I, one of us is like, just not interested. Like we have, I know how this works. I know the dynamic. I see it every day. I work with people all the time and I'm like, okay, let's, so this Saturday, let's sit down and let's look at things. And so you see where things are and things and the moving pieces and the stuff. And she's like, nah, you've got that. You know what? So what, in that circumstance, like if something happens to me tomorrow, then my wife is in exactly the same circumstance your mom was in. Yes. Even though we've attempted to loop it in and let her know, and she's got access to the spreadsheets and all the stuff, and she sees it all, and no, just you've got this. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I don't need to know. You know, sometimes she'd be like, "Ah, oh, I'm all nervous because I don't know." Okay, let's talk about it. But it's never like a regular practice. It, you must advise a regular practice of some kind. So, Jonathan, what you've mentioned is actually quite common, right? But I'd say irrelevant of gender because sometimes you'd find it's the other partner in the relationship who'd be unwilling. So it, it doesn't matter which partner it is, right? So when we find a situation right. like that and one partner will approach us and say, this is a problem that I'm having with my partner and it's coming across that they're not willing or not wanting to actually actually approach this? How do we break the ice here? So what we do is like in your scenario, we would spend time with your wife, right? Because how it's coming across to you is that maybe she's not willing or wanting to to look at the finances or empower herself. Maybe that's how you are perceiving it, right? From your point of view. And we actually sit down with her and there's different exercises that we use to actually understand what's going on there. And this may not surprise you when I tell you this, you know, earlier on, you asked about, you know, what kind of led me to my journey. There could have been some trigger event 
And that could have happened in her early days. It could have even happened a year or a month ago or something that could have happened to make her believe or feel that this is something that I don't want to do. We have a very gentle approach in terms of getting to it without putting a client in a situation where they find themselves in a space of shame or embarrassment. That is not what we do. But we use an approach where we facilitate healthy communication. And maybe for some reason, if she's unable to communicate that to you, she would communicate this to me. And jointly, I would probe her and facilitate the conversation to now see how is it she could approach you in a way that doesn't bring up conflict and in a way that creates a safe environment for her to effectively communicate. Why is it that whenever you bring this up, she's not wanting to, she may come across as not collaborating or not wanting to look at this. I've had enough therapy to realize that some of the backstory might be because you, the way you keep saying this is the way I perceive it. So it may very well be that I am very aggressive <laughs> around my financial opinions. And so when I have a financial opinion and I, and I want to share it and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And this, she's like, I, you know, you've got this because I'm too aggressive. So it's, my perception is because of the way I maybe come across. I appreciate that's a good thing. That's a self-learning right there. Self-learning, Jonathan. And, you know, I actually applaud you for this awareness as well, because a lot of clients are not aware of it. This is probably 12, I don't know, 13 years ago. There was this investment that I really wanted to do that she really didn't want to do. And back in the day we had, so I, I was married once before and I had a couple businesses before, one of which had some legal issues. So we had a prenup to protect her from my legal issues. So we had separate money, right? And so we had this big discussion about this investment that I wanted to make. I like, I'm an investor, I like investing in everything. And I said to her, you know, we should do this together. We should do this. And she's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. And I was like, ah, I'm gonna do it myself with my own money then, right? Of course, fast forward like eight years, the investment totally fails, like I lose every penny. <laughs> so I started actually talking more about joint decisions are usually better decisions. <laughs> Let's see, Jonathan, this speaks to what I said earlier on, right? You were the one who was willing to take the risk, but she was more conservative and prudent in her decision making. Mm -hmm. And whoa, whoa, I don't know if that's prudent. I, Some risk is prudent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe bad choice of words, but you know, and you still went yes. ahead. But can you see how it's yep. two different personalities? Yep, for sure. Yeah, one of the things I noticed, I, the CMC and the CFP, those are designations we use here. Yes. So it's the same registration, it's the same designation body that's sort of governing it. Do you know what the difference, I mean, you're doing it there, I'm doing it here. I wonder what the differences are. Is it just like the different tax structures that we live under? So I think it would definitely be linked to legislation. Yeah. Definitely from a tax perspective. So I think that's the big thing because we both CFPs. I'm part of the Financial Planning Institute of Southern Africa. So that's my, you know, geographic location. And I guess yours would be USA. So I'd say the biggest thing would be legislation linked to tax laws. And the other difference then, though, I mean, it's more on the product recommendation side, of course. That's a huge difference as well, based on our naming convention and the different types of product categories, et cetera. 
So would you explain that? I mean, you might know better what's there and you might know what's here as well, but I don't really know what the product categories are. Could you explain that? What's available in South Africa for people sure. to so, invest in, insure all that kind of stuff? Sure. So I think our categories are, are very similar to yours, but our naming convention differs. So you've got stocks, we've got shares. You've got mutual funds, we've got unit trusts. Life insurance, I think, remains the same wherever you are, right? So that's a commonality there. Then you guys have the 401ks. We call them retirement annuities here. So I think it's just different naming conventions. Also, like things like estate planning. And I have worked with a client from the U.S. who's now based in South Africa. So I've also seen for things like estate planning. You've got it there. We've got it here. But the taxation differs. Of course. Also, still on fiduciary, still on the subject of fiduciary matters, we call them wills and you call them last testament and wills, I think, on your end. So it's very yep. similar, but what differs is the naming convention and yep. also things more from a tax perspective. So I've paid a little bit of attention about the differences in the cost of the investments, the price of those shares or the mutual funds or the or those kinds of things in the, from the UK and the US. And the US has, you know, in the last 25 years has driven the price of the actual products down, 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 down. The UK is kind of going through that same process and they're a little bit behind. Like there's still products that you can invest in that are two and a half percent, you know, internal costs in the UK. There's still some of those in the US that are more rare now. Do you have that same experience? Are there internal are there co- products where the internal costs are like really prohibitively expensive? Yes, I do recall a podcast and I think the gentleman the gentleman that you were interviewing was Gil, if I'm not mistaken. And I think there was some questions around this, right? So in South Africa, it depends on whether you're utilizing a financial planner to manage your fund or whether you're going direct and utilizing mm. a fund manager or an investment platform directly. So if you're using a certified financial planner, we actually have a pricing structure in terms of legislation and what is it a financial planner can actually charge to the fund, right? So Hmm. over and above your admin fees for the fund, your fund management fees or whatever costs are associated to the fund, over and above that, there is a certain percentage, a minimum and a maximum that a certified financial planner can charge. Now, this becomes a negotiation or a discussion between the client and the financial planner. You also have some clients who actually say, obviously, you and I both know the higher the cost to the fund, that impacts the return at the end of the day. So a lot of clients often say, invoice me separately and I will actually pay you um, you know, out of my own bank account as opposed to paying you from the fund. So also in terms of fund expenses as well, over the last five to 10 years, a lot of work has been done to try and transform funds to what we call more new generation funds, where the fees are much lower, you have more access to more fund managers. Even if you're switching portfolios, the funds are very low. Even if you're looking at stopping an investment, you know, the penalties are much lower or non-existent. So there's a lot of that that has been done over the last few years. And South Africa tends to follow the steps in the footsteps of the UK, right? 
Then there's the other aspect where a lot of clients tend to go direct to market. So this would be a fund manager, and this is traditionally clients with, and I've seen on your website, you've got a particular entry amount in terms of clients that you advise, you know, and I think that is that is quite important because you can't be everything to everyone, right? So with more, I call them sort of and this is no disrespect, but more sort of lower income sort of clients, clients who are just starting their investing journey, when we see the amounts that they're looking at investing, be it a recurring premium or a lump sum, then we'd say to them, listen, it makes more sense for you to go direct. However, we'd guide them in terms of fund management choices, etc. And by doing so direct, it's much cheaper for them. And also from an ethical perspective, it's the right thing to do. And they also tend to have the capacity and also those type of firms, they make it very easy for clients to invest direct. You know, it's not a client for want of a better word to say, like a high net worth client who's got millions of rands and who really actively needs the assistance of a financial planner to manage the portfolio. And then you can actually then justify the fee that you're actually charging the client. So there's a few fine points in there that I think we should pull on. Okay. There's, so there's two, two avenues I want to go, I want to go down. The first avenue is is we've just opened the door to this question about who needs a financial planner, who needs a person like you or I to actually sit with them and do the work, and then who maybe doesn't and can do it themselves. And I struggle to identify and speak respectfully of both sides. That's one thing that I think it's important to talk about. And then the other thing is... The similarities, the UK, South Africa, the US, both in the cultural dynamics of the changing power structure in families around money and in the industries themselves as they shift to lower cost. It's just really interesting to note that it's a global phenomenon. And of course it is, right? Of course it is. Like it makes perfect sense. So let's go to the second one first. Is that, I mean, who lead, do you think the US leads this or do you think it's just something like it's, uh, what is it like, like it's, we're all drinking from the same psychological big pool cup and we kind of come to this decision that, oh, you know, couples should be more even and we'll get there eventually. And then prices should be more reasonable and we'll get there eventually. Is that just a normal, normal process? So Jonathan, I definitely say the US leads the market. You know what they say, when the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches cold, right? And in all fairness, South Africa is a third world country. We are very much a follower and we take our lead from, as I've mentioned, the UK because we implement a lot of the legislative changes that the UK does. So we tend to follow in their footsteps. But holistically, I'd say the leader at the forefront is always the US. What I have found, though, and I don't know... For better or for worse. For better or for worse. I've also found, though because a lot of South Africans tend to immigrate to Australia and there's a huge expat community of South Africans there in Australia, the financial planning system in Australia and South Africa is very similar, if that makes sense. Mm. 
So yeah. that's a commonality that I've picked up over the years with clients having moved to Australia. And also with my studies in terms of the money coaching, I've been fortunate to work with other classmates from Australia and other parts of the world. So you build relationships and, you know, we can ask the type of questions that you asking me, you know, to get a better understanding of what's happening in a different country. So I want to get to this first question of how do you tell who needs a planner and who doesn't, but there's a path I want to go to get there. Okay. So tell us how you, or what was the pro you started, you, you, know, you got out of college, you started working at the bank. Yeah. Okay. Did you go, I'm going to get the CM, you know, right then I'm going to get the CFP. I'm going to get the thing or was it, did it develop over time? And then what were the triggers that said, you know what, I'm getting the coaching thing. I'm getting the planning thing. I'm getting the business thing. So what led you to get all this education? Sure. So after college and getting my first job at the bank, it was what we call here in South Africa, a graduate recruitment program. So it's where they take individuals on and they train you in different areas of the bank. And upon completion of the program, you get to choose which area you'd like to work at. And then you start your career progression in terms of where you see yourself in three to five years time. So for me, that cycle, instead of going for 18 months, I was done with the cycle in about nine or 10 months. And I progressed very quickly and they couldn't hold me back because they have deliverables in each part of the bank in the different areas, be it strategic, operational, that you work at. And I just over exceeded my deliverables, you know, and then I reached a point where my peers were still completing the program, but I was done. And at that point in time, the concept of private banking was becoming, it was a relatively new, but quite a big concept in South Africa. And what the banks were looking was implementing what they call a bank assurance model. Now that particular model is quite common in the UK. So basically what it means is at the bank, you have bankers who deal with clients' banking needs and you have a financial planner linked to the banker who deals with the client's financial planning needs. And I would watch, so ideally my seniors at the bank saw me in a role as a private banker. So I started shadowing the private bankers just to get an understanding of what this role would entail and whether I'd like to proceed with the role. And it was during that point in time I found the role of the financial planner to be more interesting and attractive to me because of my previous studies, studying finance and investments at college. And I thought to myself, hold on, I think I'm in the wrong role. Now, because of corporate politics, they were quite keen on having me pursue the role of a banker. So when I asked for the role of a financial planner, you know, they've basically said to me, no, you know, we don't see you in this type of role. So I thought to myself, okay, you know, I'm young, I'm starting off my career. I'd really like to explore this role of a financial planner further. I started job hunting and I was successful and I got a role at an insurance company here in South Africa. And that was where I'd say I bit my teeth into the insurance industry. And then from there, it moved to financial planning. So I spent about four years there. And during that time period, because I predominantly specialized in advising clients in investments, I realized that I had a lot of knowledge gaps. 
And then I thought to myself, hey, the CFP qualification would definitely add more gravitas, you know, to my qualifications, and it would allow me the learning curve to hopefully close the gaps that I had. And that was how I decided to pursue the CFP qualification. So there was a postgraduate qualification that I had to complete first. And once I was done, then we'd sit for board exams. And that was what led me to the CFP qualification. So I'd say for me, it was more looking internally, introspecting and realizing that there was so much more that I needed in order to advise clients, specifically clients who had larger sums of money. And that was what led me to the CFP qualification. I'm just going to insert something. It all seems very rational and very well thought out and a very, you know, was your experience as a 15 year old girl, was that always kind of in the background? Did you like, remember my mom had this huge sum of money. She didn't know what to do with it. Or was it really just this whole rational progression? So Jonathan, great question. It was only when I listened to your podcast with Gil and he actually mentioned that a lot of advisors tend to go into this role based on a trauma experienced in their life. Did I have the biggest light bulb moment? You know? Yeah. And I can truly say that was definitely one of the contributing factors that led me to this career choice. I just wondered about that. It just all seemed rational, too rational. So I'm glad. To, thank you for admitting that. Now, how does that progress into this uh, the coaching? Yeah. So, I mean, I've practiced as a certified financial planner for many years. I mean, I went on to other corporates, took on other roles. I moved my area of specialization from individuals to businesses. And that came to me quite easily. And I think that could also be because I was exposed to business and entrepreneurship at a very young age. As well, I found it quite easy to communicate and work with business owners. But I was also reaching a stage, Jonathan, and I'm uncertain how it works in the States. But in South Africa, you have different categories of people who advise. You know, you've got the certified financial planners and they can charge fees for hourly consultations and plans. So it's a more of fee for advice service. And then you've got the advisors who then place products and they earn commissions. And I was very clear the products and commissions was not for me. You know, I was definitely going to sell to clients, but what I was looking at selling was advice. And I found that at that point in time, and this was about eight or nine years ago, and this still exists in South Africa, there were not many fee-for-advice practices. And I realized that if I wanted to do this, the only way I could do it was actually by going out there and actually going the long, hard route of establishing a practice by myself. And that was actually what led me to found Opulentus Wealth eight years ago to allow me to create or found a fee-based practice and create my own fee-based model. And that's led me to my own practice. Do you have a question before I continue? I do. I'm getting I do. to the before, before you... <laughs> Okay, so that you have this practice. You're kind of at the vanguard. We were talking just seconds ago about the cultural changes and the driving of the prices lower. And for there to be product that's available at a lower cost, there have to be people like yourself setting up businesses that use that product and offer that lower cost product to clients. So you're literally at the vanguard. You're where we were in the States like 25 years ago when we started pushing this stuff down and now it's the money is flowing from brokers and banks to 
RIAs and fiduciaries, right? Which is a beautiful thing. So I'm sorry to interrupt, no. co- continue the story, but it's very impressive. Like it's an impressive thing to, to, to make that decision. I could go the easy way, make a whole bunch of money, be very successful, you know, be, but not serve my client the way I think it's appropriate to serve my client. So, you know, kudos to you. Thank you. So it has been quite a journey, as you can imagine, you know, starting up a practice, being much younger and, you know, competing with the bigger practices out there. But it's been interesting. It's been really fulfilling over. And during that time, I realized, you know, whether it was myself or other members in the team, when we worked with clients, you know, they'd come in, we'd put together the most amazing plans, have wonderful discussions, agree on timelines and a whole lot of things. And I'd find a year or two down the line, you'd contact the client and the client would literally ghost you. They would not pick up calls. They would not respond to emails. They would not return text messages. And I think to myself, what went wrong here? And eventually when you'd get hold of the client, you'd actually find out that they don't want to meet with you because they've actually paused their financial plan or they've actually cashed in an investment without you somehow finding about it or something has happened that has caused them to move off track and because of that they just didn't want to face you and i'd often you know just take it so hardly on myself you know and i chat to my own business coach and my own life coach and like introspect and think what is it that i could have done better maybe there's something i've missed you know and that has always been going on for the last few years and literally three years ago when COVID hit us that was when this whole concern of, you know, is it me? Is it them? What am I doing wrong? What can I do better? That like really came to the forefront. And, you know, I'm uncertain what your experiences were in the States, but here in South Africa, because I work with a lot of either business clients or a lot of investment clients, the initial knee jerk reaction was cash out, cash out, cash out. Now, you and I both know that is the wrong thing to do. You stick it out. The markets will rectify itself. You stick to your goals. You keep calm. You keep going. But Jonathan, you know, it didn't matter what I said to clients. They were not interested in hearing the technical side of it. They were so driven by emotion and I just couldn't communicate with clients. And I realized, you know, maybe I need to go for more, you know, for workshops on effective communication. But I saw that as a huge gap. And because it's COVID, you're working from home, you know, you've got more time available to now research and do things that you couldn't do prior to COVID. And that actually set me on a path of really what I call deep discovery. And that was what led me to the Money Institute in the States and the certificate in money coaching and the entire money coaching course. And then when I was done with one, I realized, oh, I might as well just get all done, you know, because I could see with the clients that I work with, they individuals, they couples, as well as business owners. So for me, it didn't make sense to only do one. And by studying the coaching, I realized that what my clients needed at that point in time was either money coaching or financial coaching and not financial advice. But the only thing I was equipped to do at that point in time was giving financial advice. The behavioral aspect of it, I just, 
I'll be honest, Jonathan, I just couldn't handle it, you know, and that was that was what led me to the coaching aspect. So in many ways, it's just a natural progression, because I mean, whether it's advisory, whether it's coaching, as you are experiencing yourself, both still have the commonality around finances and money, right? But the approach is really different. One is more technical, the other is more emotional and behavioral. So that has been my journey. So I got really, really, really exceedingly, amazingly, ridiculously lucky. So when I joined, it was Dean Witter. It was a big, you know, wirehouse, you know, US. It was, it became Morgan Stanley. You know, it was a big company as a salesman, you know, in 1996. The first speaker I saw was a guy named Nick Murray. And Nick Murray is like no nonsense. He said, the benefit you provide to your client is emotional stability. You can't predict stocks. You can't predict which funds are going to do better. You can't predict anything. You just broadly diversify. You own it all. And the key is holding on when everything falls apart. And so, Jonathan, what you have to do, this is literally like five days in. Jonathan, what you have to do is you have to learn how to, when they can't be strong, be their strength. Wow. And you have to have a communication system set up so that they know. And so for 25 years, I've just had this constant communication constant flow of information, constant. And so when they have an issue, it's like we have this conversation, but it's, I wasn't raised with the technical. I was raised with the emotional. And so then when Kahneman wins the Nobel prize for behavioral finance and there's more Nobel prize and I'm reading, and I'm studying all this behavioral finance. I'm like, yeah, what do you guys, of course, like that makes all the sense in the world. So I just got really, really lucky with training day one. It was awesome. I love your journey though. Just fantastic. I mean, Jonathan, you are so blessed. You know, if I could go back in my life, I wish I would have met Nick, you know, that would have just made my journey so much easier. And I would have gone a different way, you know, but I'm so pleased to hear that that has been your journey, because I truly believe, you know, as much as I hold the CFP designation, it's all about behavioral finance. Yep, It is 100%. Do you read blogs and listen to podcasts from the States? I do. So you know, Michael Kitsis? I've heard of him. Yes. Okay. So in the, in the States, he is, I think the most followed he, and when I first saw your, I've got this designation, this, he's like the number one in the States. Like he has all the designations and an MBA and a this and a that he's got them all. And you look at his name is this long. His designations are this, like, it's crazy how many designations he has. So when I need technical stuff, cause I'm not actually, I'm not a CFP. Like I'm a, CPWA, which is a chartered private wealth advisor. And I'm an AIF, which is an accredited investment and fiduciary, right? So I'm different things. I've never done my CFP and I'm not going to right now. It's too much work. So <laughs> it is a lot, of work. <laughs> a, lot of work. It's a lot of work, but whenever I had a technical question, I would just go to Michael Kitsis because Michael Kitsis has always taken whatever the, the new law, the new tax code and just broken it down. And he has a podcast on it and a blog on it and go, okay, I get that. Like it makes sense. Like, go to the experts, bring the ex experts in. And I just focused on, focused on behavioral stuff. So if you, you, I would highly recommend checking out Kitsis. I will uh, definitely do so. Thank you for that. You could be the Kitsis of South Africa. <laughs> I mean, you could start, keep adding the things on, be the expert, have the blog and have the podcast. Absolutely. So, let's go to this. Someone comes to you and they have financial questions. How do you differentiate between this person needs coaching you know, right away, coaching versus planning? 
So what we do, Jonathan, is that we offer clients a 30-minute exploratory call, right? And it's during this call, you know, I've, I've put together a whole lot of questions, which I use as well as the other planners in the team to very quickly yet respectfully get to the reason as to why the client would like to meet with us. And as you would know, being in the behavioral finance space, it's all about listening, right? And you actually listen to what is it the client is saying. And very quickly, so some of the members of my team, I sometimes need to help them out. But because I've been doing this for a while, I'd be able to listen and realize whether a client needs coaching before the advisory side or whether they just need advisory. And nine out of 10 times, and I think a lot of it has to do with the South African demographic and the challenges that we face here in South Africa. But nine out of 10 times, clients tend to firstly need coaching. And it's only mm -hmm. once we go through the coaching and we try and change and we address behavior and a whole lot of things, then can we move into the advisory side of it? Wow. And so do you have like a formal coaching process that you use before you start the planning? Yes. So it depends. In the past, I'd do traditional financial coaching. But now because I'm a certified money coach, so my first just quickly listening to a client, I'd be able to tell whether they firstly need to go, whether they either need the money coaching process, which is very specific, or whether they'd need more of the general financial coaching process. So sure. we've got processes in place for both. With the money coaching, we follow the process that I've learned from the Money Institute, whereas the financial coaching process is something that I've put together using the coaching frameworks that we have in South Africa. And by the end of the process, we're able to gauge a person's readiness in terms of their commitment to a financial plan. A lot of times, and you know, I don't know how familiar you are with South Africa, but we currently have an almost 36% unemployment rate. So yeah. when yeah. clients are coming to you, they're not coming to ask for advice to invest like $6,000 or whatever, you know, when they're coming to you, it's more coaching related. It's more around issues like debt management, budgeting, you know, these are issues that are things that with a coach and collaboration, you can find ways to more educate a client and try and coach them out of a negative situation until they reach a stage where, you know, a lot of changes have taken place around mismanagement or, or poor behavior decisions. And then they're more confident and more ready and able to move to the advisory side of things where, you know, the commitment will be far greater because we've addressed a lot of the issues around the coaching side of things. Wow. So it is, I have spent my entire career. Oh, do you have the phrase, the 1%? We do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've spent my entire career working with probably the 5%. Okay. Right? It's not all 1%, but I've always tried it. While my peer group has said, we need to move up market. We need to move up market. We need to, you know, serve people with more money because that's, you know, it's easier to serve one person 
with 10 million than 10 people with 1 million. So people would always try to move up market, move up market. And I was always like, I need to help people that were like my parents when I was a kid. I need to help people that just like what you're doing, the coaching and stuff. And it's not, the structure really isn't there that good in the United States for that. So that's my retirement transition. That's what I'm moving towards in my life. And you're doing them both at the same time. Is that hard? Because you have, on the one hand, you've got people where it's, they're committed and they're doing it and they're going through the plan and they're following it and they're investing and they're being successful. And then the next day you're coming over here and you're saying, hey, let's work on your debt management and let's work on your emotional you know, stance around money. And is it hard keeping them both like up? So for me, Jonathan, that's the reason why I decided to separate and have two different business entities, right? And the good thing is if you a founder of a practice, you can even get people in to manage and run the practice for you and you decide which yep. of the two you want to be at, right? Yep. And yep. for me, so currently because the coaching side of the business, Imali Coaching is pretty new, I tend to spend most of my time within the coaching practice and my team runs with the advisory practice because it's well established, it's eight years and counting. Our strategy is one where we retain clients. So there's a lot of organic growth. New clients who come in though, I will do the exploratory call. I'll see where the client fits in. And if it's more from an advisory perspective, I'm quite competent that the planners in my team would be able to proceed with things from the advisory side. The coaching side for me is where, I mean, Whichever way, Jonathan, I love both sides of it, but I feel my heart is gravitating more towards the coaching side of things. I feel from making a difference in people's lives, you do on both sides, but I just feel a greater sense of fulfillment that comes from the coaching side, if that makes sense. Yep. And it's interesting. I do think the people that have the money and are investing, they need coaching too. It's not as if they don't benefit from you know, the other designation, right? For sure. So there's a ton of noise out there in the world and we need to move towards wrapping because it's, you know, I want to sit here and talk to you for the next hour because <laughs> this has been great. But at the in every episode, I ask a series of like very simple, very similar questions because I want listeners to get value in terms of what should I do, right? So there's a ton of noise out there. Can you just name one or two things that somebody could do today, tomorrow, and if they did that thing and committed to that thing, they would be more financially successful and have more well-being. Okay, so I think the first thing that comes to mind, and this would be from a financial coaching perspective, I'm going to use the word budgeting, but I do recall in one of your podcasts, one of the speakers gave a different terminology for it. But for the life of me, I cannot recall it. So I'm just going to use budgeting, right? And the reason why I say that is I'm certain not only in South Africa, but also in the U.S. and globally, interest rates have started increasing. Even though the pandemic is over, we're still under some sort of financial distress globally. And I believe that the first place a person should revisit is actually their budget, right? And look at it, and I'm also stealing from another speaker here. I think it was Scott who actually spoke about the fine line between needs and wants, right? And that comes up when you look at your budget, right? Because there's a lot of things that are necessity. And yes, as humans, we all have needs and wants, right? But it's defining. If you can afford to pay cash for those wants, go ahead and do it, right? 
but there's a difference between a pair of Nike sneakers and just a pair of sneakers that you can buy from Target or wherever, right? They're both going to protect your feet and they're both going to get you to wherever you need to, right? So for me, the first thing I'd say right now is try and keep your budget as lean and mean as possible. So in the event of anything going wrong, you know, interest rates going up higher, which put pressures on your home loans, your mortgages, or any other debt that you may have, it makes if you've got a lean budget, you would be able to have some surplus to accommodate for that. So for me, the budgeting is the first thing. Then the second thing that I'd like to say is be more authentic and honest about where you are in your life financially, right? So, you know, a lot of us tend to tell ourselves stories and the fantasies about how great we're doing financially and how well we're tracking towards our goals. But the reality is, and I don't know about you, Jonathan, but personally, as a business owner, the pandemic did affect my practices. And in terms of my own personal financial goals, I am out by at least three to four years, you know, and this is me being open and honest, but it took a great deal of honesty for me to be real with myself. And what I'm trying to say to people out there is be real because now I know if I'm out by three to four years, hey, I've got a new practice. That's another source of income, right? So chances of my gap getting smaller is far likely now that I've faced the reality of what's happening mm. out there. And for me, Absolutely. you know, those would be the two most important things that I'd like to share. And then because not all the noise is intelligent, yeah. what are a couple things that people hear about that they should stop doing? Oh, my word. Don't hate me for this. <laughs> Cryptocurrency. Oh, I love you for that. <laughs> All things like it, like all the little sexy, hot, whatever it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, this is really big in South Africa right now, right? So clients would say to you, oh, in, why should I, if they'd say to me, Nikki, you've given me this recommendation in terms of implementing my financial plan, but it's going to take me like five to 10 years to get to where I need to get to. But I can just invest in cryptocurrency and in a few months, I will have 10 times that amount. And I say, by all means, go ahead and please call me when you reach that value. So the big thing for me is the cryptocurrency. Yeah, it's been a, it's a big thing for me for about 10 I've written on it. I've thought, you know, it drives me crazy. I literally just yesterday on LinkedIn, I had a back and forth conversation with a guy who's getting 10% a month. And I'm like, and he said he doesn't think it's risky. I'm like, okay, good luck. Like, I wish you the best, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Just listening to you say that is... If it's too good to be true, it really is. Yeah. If it looks too good, smells too good, you know, it's too good. Like it can't be real. I love it. Actually, I had that same thought when I read his email I was, <laughs> or his little LinkedIn note. I was like, can't you see that that's not possible? <laughs> anyway, so uh, two quick personal sure. questions. Well, maybe they're quick. Maybe they're long. Sure. I don't know. Is there anything your clients don't? I know you're an open book. <laughs> You've been very open to me and I appreciate that. Sure. Is there anything your clients don't know about you that you want them to know about you? I think some of my clients, because 
a lot of the clients that I now have are clients that I've acquired when I started up the practice a few years ago. So one of the things that a lot of clients don't know about me is that I was previously married. And one of the main reasons, well, I'd say married and divorced in less than a year. And one of the main mm. reasons or, or contributing factors to that was actually finance. And you want them to know that? Well, I mean, if clients are, so if I need to share or if it comes up in conversation, it's not something that I'm embarrassed about at all, you know, and especially because even post-divorce, I was able to, and this is my story about being independent, you know, financially, emotionally, etc. I was still able to, yes, it's not a great feeling. You've been through it yourself as well, but I was still able to get back on my feet, move forward with my life, establish my new practice and just move forward. Yeah. Independence is bliss. Independence is the best way to go. Yeah. If you could get the truth about any question about your life and future, what question <laughs> would you ask? Okay. I also recall this from some of the podcasts, you know, and I thought to myself, I just hope and pray Jonathan does not ask me this question. <laughs> I just hope and pray. So, you know, Jonathan, for me, if there's anything I would actually like to know is, and it's actually a simple one, is where would I be in the next 10 years? Because I find myself at crossroads right now with two different practices, you know, a great deal of commonality between the two. And once tugging at my heartstrings, being my first baby, eight years and counting, the other is a new venture. And, you know, and why this tugs at my heartstrings is because I actually received an offer for my advisory practice from a company that I didn't even mention that I was actually looking at selling and they just approached me. And I found myself actually wondering whether I should consider the offer. So for me, my question mm. would be is, where would I be in 10 years? Would I still be linked to both practices or would it just be one practice, you know? So it's more around that, more around a career sort of question. Yeah, that's totally, I think I asked myself that question. <laughs> I think that's, uh, I'd like to know the answer to that as well. But you've mentioned so your retirement plan, see? So you've already been thinking about it. It's a 20 year retirement plan. <laughs> <Okay>. So. <laughs> 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 I think about it all the time and I'm like, I can't like, what would I do with my time? Like I, retirement just seems, I don't understand it. Like, uh, but all the people I know they're retired, they have a great time. So it's, it'll, I'll figure it out. Tell people how they can connect with you. Where do they find you? So Jonathan, the easiest would be one of the, two, well, either of the websites. So it would be www.imolicoaching.com or www.opulentuswealth.co.za. Awesome. Nikki, thank you so much for coming on. This has been eye-opening and enlightening. I very much appreciate it. All those things will be in the show notes. I just want to say thank you. Jonathan, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been an absolute blast. And yeah, look forward to listening to the podcast later. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Thank you.